listening to the Couples Guide podcast. I'm Ryan. And I'm Talia. We're both licensed marriage and family therapists. And today, like every day, (laughs) we're debunking myths and delivering truth about dating, relationships, and everything in between. Trust us. It's awesome. Episode 88. I'm in crisis. You're <laughs> complaining. Get over it. No, I don't know what I want anymore from this podcast and from our relationship. I, you know what? I know what I do want. Mm. A red convertible. Isn't that the go-to when someone might be in um, a crisis of sorts? I need to go get my red convertible. I hear that's a thing. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes <laughs> it is. Sometimes it's not. Uh, that's going to fix everything. Yeah. I mean, I'm just going to reconnect to the youth that I never lived in hopes to avoid feeling the pain and the anxiety, and the existential weight of the life not lived. So I don't know what you're saying. I want a red convertible. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want therapy. I want a convertible. And I want a young girlfriend named Sarah. <laughs> Sarah, <laughs> you know Sarah? <laughs> I like Sarah, too. For all those stairs out there. (laughs) She'll be in my passenger seat in my red convertible. Yes. Um, What are we talking about today, my midlife crisis dude? Exactly that. If listeners (laughs) had to figure that out. Yep. Midlife crisis. Um, We had a great uh, listener question in the email. Um, Thank you for that. And listener asked, what guidance do you have when a spouse is going through a midlife crisis? Yes. And this is in the context, the email is in the context of a heteronormative relationship. Uh So know that if you are continuing to listen, the advice will be given through that lens. However, as you can with any episode, you can extrapolate this to other contexts because there's certain traits or there's certain reasonings, I think, that could be applied to other types of relationships. But this is a very classic trope also in society to your point, the red convertible, the male midlife crisis looks different than the female midlife crisis. And the life unlived that we are looking back on in retrospect is also going to be starkly different for each partner. So that's where we're going to come at it from. Yeah. Let's start it at that place about understanding some of the differences of midlife crises, or first of all, just what they are, what, what do we mean by midlife crisis and also how they can look different, um, Mm -hmm. for, uh, different people and different genders. Okay, so I'm going to pull up my research because being part Enneagram 5, I'm obsessed with research. Yay. <laughs> uh, when that there it is. So midlife, midlife crises now because the lifespan has expanded longer than it used to be. Mm-hmm. Come at any point. I mean, if you die around 60, it would be around 30. So there's in some part benefit of talking about certain ages this could happen at but in other parts it's just whatever your midlife might be between 30 to 50 let's just give a really wide range it could start as early as that and as late as you know 50s or 60s who knows it's a state of mind man yes just whatever bro it's a later life crisis we can call it even if it's not midlife so typically when we're seeing middle adulthood in erickson's psychosocial stages of development middle adulthood in his view, is from about 40 to 65. Obviously, there's nuance within that. I think we could uh, benefit from reworking some of these stages. But the whole goal of that stage is 
generativity or stagnation. So do you want to generate a new life? Do you want to look back on your life with all that you've done? Or do you feel stagnant? Like you're not producing anymore, typically mm-hmm. around retirement. And then the last phase after middle adulthood, late adulthood would be more of like the maturity phase, which we look at from 65 all the way until you pass on. That would be ego integrity versus despair. So mm-hmm. in middle adulthood, this midlife crisis would look somewhat around work and parenthood. Adults need to create or nurture things that will outlast them, often by having children or creating a positive change that benefits other people around them. Success leads to feelings of usefulness and accomplishment, while failure results in a shallow involvement in the world and a feeling of almost pre-despair of what they haven't done at the life unlived. And then when we look at that maturity life phase, ego integrity versus despair, the whole goal is to reflect on life. Older adults need to look back and feel a sense of fulfillment. Success at this stage leads to feelings of wisdom. And then failure would lead to feelings of regret, bitterness, and despair. So that's just on a psychosocial foundational level. I want to list that. And then I have more nuance into the male midlife crisis that I want to hear your thoughts first on that. Well, I just want to frame that in that, you know, you're helping our listeners here. This is what's going on. Um, at this stage of life for humans humans, and yes. what you're noted and what this di- the the dichotomy you're sharing the different ways that can be uh, humans can experience this stage of their life is in some ways these positive traits these things to be looking out for or yeah. if they're struggling then this is that crisis place and where they might be in this despair stage so in this episode we're talking about what's going on in a midlife crisis but it's important to acknowledge what does the positive template look like this generativity is Mm -hmm. where you can look for some guidance of here's where you want to put energies into you want to be looking into how can you be giving back to community how can you be developing the next generation or looking at your parenting, your career, what are these kind of things going on? We might, I I don't know if we'll get into more of that later. I just wanted to highlight that is that's what we're hoping for at this stage of our life. But of course, it's very common that we as humans struggle. And that's where this other part of despair, doubt, regret comes in. And that's the breeding ground for midlife crisis is that dissatisfaction, that distress of I've been going through my life for so long with these expectations, thoughts, identity of who I am, and then things aren't meeting those expectations or my hopes of where I wanted to be. So some reflection happens and boom, despair, regret, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So just, just mm-hmm. my response to what you're saying about this is a com- common thing about this stage of life. Yes. So why this is this is a midlife or later life crises is usually more of a crisis for people around the person going through it yes it is a crisis for the person who's having this identity shift and change it also feels like a crisis for everyone else so it's kind of twofold because typically the phase of life and we're going with men because that's the example from the email the phase of life that men are in or the tasks that they're working towards prior to the crisis happening would be that they have worked forever. Um, They have all their accomplishments. They can see the light at the end of the tunnel of all this work that they've been putting in their whole life. And we see this crisis happen about 10 to 12 years after that career is really solidified 
and that role in their work life and that channeling of their masculine is really solidified. So timing wise, it's not as much again about age. If you can work backwards with, okay, they really got settled into their career around 20, this might happen at 32. If they got settled into their career at 30, this might be 40. So just keep that in mind. That's generally what we've seen in the research. This is about that 10 to 12 year sweet spot um, after they've um, solidified their career. So it could be about 10 years, but could be 12 to 14 years. I might be taking this in a different direction you're going. So we need to circle back. Let me know. But that makes sense what you're saying. Of course, the 10 to 12 years after selling your career where these things can come up. I have thoughts on that. But I also have thoughts about, I, I see these types of, you know, distress and crises come up, not just because someone settled into their career, but because maybe they haven't settled into their career. Um, I, and I, I know I'm kind of like picking at, you know, a nuance here because it could be, oh, my career is suddenly, oh, I'm a, I've been, um, you know, I, I started, this is true to my life. I started, um, you know, waiting tables in college and then I became a professional server and was like, mm-hmm. whoa, I've been here forever. That wasn't what I chose as a career. So now I'm in this place I'm settled in and, but distraught about this isn't what I really chose. But even then there could be not so in the career where I've been jumping from job to job to job, haven't had the opportunity to even settle into a career. And then lo and behold, you're in your mid thirties going, what am I doing with my life? What What is my career? So I don't know if where you're going is going to address that piece too, but I, I did just want to say, Hey, I think that 10, 12 year makes sense, yeah. but it's with career. But I think also without career, without That's guidance, it. without like a firm, I know what I'm doing. Yes. I'm glad that you brought that up because when we're looking at midlife, late life crises, that is specifically around, I have found the empire that I'm going to build and I have been working towards it diligently for that decade plus. (laughs) That's where we're talking about this stereotypic cultural midlife, late life crisis. In your other sense that you brought up, that's more when it would be an existential crisis, an identity uh-huh. crisis, a quarter life crisis, a moratorium, if you will. I have to get my stuff together. Uh-huh. I can't be Peter Pan anymore. I have to settle in. And there's a lot of nuance behind that personality type. Um, you could look at Myers-Briggs. You could look at Enneagram. You could look at your big five. You could look at all these other psychometric assessments. What type of person are you and what traits do you have? And could those lead you to be more of the type to be, I'll spend a little time at this job, a little time at that job, I'll figure it out. There's mm-hmm. there's so much more that goes on with the identity formation that could cause an identity crisis. Mm-hmm. But for the, the listener question, it's more specifically about you have met the person who's like a doctor, a lawyer, like mm-hmm. the person who's solidified in their role or career or trade early on and they've worked within that for that amount of time so i i think that helps to delineate yeah and i want to delineate that for the listeners keep in mind you you mentioned the listener question twice and they don't know all the backstory because we're for confidentiality we're not sharing a lot of the details of what listeners shared um so i just want to make sure that's clear that's why you're choosing to go into this one type this um this um professional type um midlife crisis um because we were just framing it as um, how did I say that? Uh, just guys, when your spouse is going through a midlife crisis, we haven't, we're just now defining that for the listeners. So yeah. cool, cool. So, and 
with this piece, 10 to 12 years, this yeah. can be a common moment when you're set yes. after yourself into a career. So midlife crisis after having like, you're basically, you're really hardworking and you're really diligent. And it's, if you're a listener, if you hold your hand up close to your face within like a couple of inches, it's like that diligently focused on what you're doing. I can't really see everything behind my hand and Ryan can see me. So he knows what I'm talking about. I can't see behind this. I get some glimpse here and some glimpse here to the right and the left, but my center focuses on what's right in front of me. Mm-hmm. When I finally look up from that and remove my hand, I have this breathtaking view of the world that I've built and everything around me. And that is wonderful, but it doesn't last very long before the crises hit. So many women that I've worked with and in all the studies of evolutionary psychology and everything that I always cite, this experience is very daunting for a man. And it's also a crisis for people around them. If women are prepared that this is going to happen around that 10 to 15, let's just be generous year, we're not going to be as shocked. And our partner, the male in this case, will be more supported because we're not going to judge them and shame them. Why aren't you the way that you are when we were married? Why are you being different? Why aren't you being helpful with the kids? Why, 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 why? Because again, that sweet spot right before the crisis happens, they are the most dutiful, the most devoted, everything a woman dreams of in a spouse, they start being for about six months to a year, then the crisis hits. Hmm. So don't get too comfortable with them being, and there's a whole point to this. So I will get, I will get to all of the questions that I see are formulating behind your eyes. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a destination in sight. It's this sweet spot where we see a lot of their arrogance and egoism diminish, and they're living a lot of what they've worked to become. They don't take up as much space as maybe they did in their early partnership. They're not trying to prove themselves as much. So they become more of like that solid source that you can lean on, very present, very devoted, very loving, very caring, very attentive. Again, everything that most women are like, that's the archetype of the kind of husband I want. But they're doing this comparative analysis of their young spouse between 20 to 30 of maybe when they were looking at where their dad was at or other men as role models in their lives, where they were at that sweet spot right before the crisis. And that's not a fair comparison. Uh So if I'm like pre-crisis me, the most masculine attentive I'll be until I get through the crisis and I'm comparing my 20 something year old spouse to that, it's not a fair comparison. And the younger that you are when you partner, the more projections and interactions you're going to have where if the guy has not had that kind of constitution or that solidification of his character, he will start to be all the things that other people want him to be, which circles into when you're going through the crisis, you look back on your life and go, oh shit, I sold myself out a lot. I said yes when I wanted to say no. I agreed to be this when I really wanted to be this. I didn't want to have that second kid, but we. D- you start to see a, l- a lot of this existentialism separate from the identity one you were talking about. Uh-huh. I'm looking back on my life and thinking how many sacrifices I had to make between those 10 to 15 years to get to this spot. Now I can devote my life. So again, it's about half a year to a year before the crisis starts. And then once the crisis starts, it could last about half a year. It could go to three to five years, depending on if you accept that it's going to happen and if your partner accepts that it's going to happen. So the that feeling would be something that needs a lot of bravery and courage to get out of. And the more that a man can feel supported in going through that 
and, and that transition, which I want to hear your feedback. And then I'll talk more about like how the Enneagram plays into this and how the other part of, um, the, the question that popped out was, um, and this is, uh, just sharing the wording of it specifically, the person had, had asked us for help with this and then had shared like out of no, out of what seemed like nowhere earlier this year, uh-huh. boom, it's not out of nowhere. If you have your eyes open and if you're paying attention in your marriage, that this is going to happen for men eventually it's uh-huh. a when not an if, uh-huh. This is different than the rut that we talked about last episode. So no, it is not out of nowhere. If you are awake in your marriage and being in a relationship with the real person in front of you and you can see it and you do the math, you can start to prep yourself as the wife in this case and go, oh, we're about there. Do they start acting differently? Are they more introspective? Are they super, super attentive? Everything I've wanted, enjoy it while it lasts because that's crisis is going to happen. And then on the other side, they're more solid in their character. And you start to see this is the phase of life when men do not want to bend. They do not want to compromise. They are who they are. Take it or leave it. Uh-huh. So you you are stuck in your ways. And if you're partnering with somebody who is in that phase of life, that older manhood, you better like the ways they're stuck in because they're not changing for anyone. They just spent their whole last few years or last few months looking at how much they change for other people over their whole life. And they're not going to want to change again. So don't try and fix them and this and that. And they are who they are. Accept it or don't. Mm. Rant over. <laughs> Rant over. Well, <laughs> uh, I love that big overview. And you're giving nice um, step by step. Like here's the different stages of like, you know, right, you know, pre, during and post crisis. I think what stands out to me is sitting in like while a couple is in that actual crisis going on sure. what can be infused with this uh, into the relationship with this understanding of what's going on and i'm always looking at compassion how do we breed yeah. more compassion um with yes. within uh, the relationship there's definitely a role for in this case a person who's going through the crisis trying to like figure out their identity um taking this knowledge and going oh that's why I'm rebelling or shifting or changing against these old structures in my life. I was saying yes to things I want to say no to all the time or saying no to things I want to say yes to all the time. Understanding that then hopefully could breed some compassion for the spouse who is now dealing with all these big changes that they didn't see coming because they didn't hear this episode yet. And then trying to host uh, their spouse and understand that their spouse is going to have a lot of stress while they're going through these changes. And mm-hmm. then on the flip side, bringing compassion to understand, oh, this is my partner, maybe for the first time, really coming to a deeper understanding of themselves because life is hard. And a lot of times it's, hey, I've got to get through um, my childhood, which can be varying degrees of stress. And depending mm-hmm. on school and career, getting set up and establishing, again, as you like to call it, and I love this analogy, the kingdom. And then great, I got that. I met the, my my spouse. We're going to have kids. It's busy, busy, busy. And then this is the first time of, oh, I can take a breath. Mm-hmm. And I don't have to do all the things that are required of me to survive. I'm no longer in survival mode. I can start asking, wait a second. I'm good. How do I thrive? And a spouse who can understand that their spouse is going through that first big breath of air to figure it out, I think can breed some compassion. Um, yes. It's why 
resentment of why are you stopping being the thing that I wanted you to be for the last year? Yeah. It's, oh, this has to be, we go through this, women go yeah. through this early in life in adolescence mm-hmm. and we come out the other side in our early 20s to mid to late 20s as more mm-hmm. sure of ourselves. Mm-hmm. You have, we have a jump start. Yeah. So I we lose touch on that. I'm curious about that. I'll come back to that in a second. Sure. Um, but that, yeah, the compassion or the resentment you know, um, that can come instead of compassion makes perfect sense when you understand that these types of changes are really scary. Um, mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, my spouse is turning to, or f- almost seems like they're turning to a different person because they're on, on a journey of figuring out themselves. Yeah. And it can be really hurtful if couples communicate in a way that then makes that a isolating or blaming experience. Yeah. then of course there's going to start, you know, some festering, some resentments can, can emerge mm-hmm. on the last thing on the compassion front um, in, about during the actual crisis in the moment. It's why when I joked earlier about the, the red convertible mm-hmm. a, a while, I used to be the person who rolled the eyes also like, Oh my gosh, there's that, you know, midlife crisis um, experience. But then I started thinking about it more and I have a lot of compassion for a dude who's like all right I'm gonna finally do this and get the car I've always wanted and feel young again I'll be honest it's not really what I would recommend it's not my choice of how I would choose to get those needs met but I can understand oh this is someone who probably never was able to fulfill that fantasy and so there's something they've wanted to do and hopefully it's not ruining their finances, they're at a place where they finally, for the first time, again, they have the breathing space and perhaps financially to afford that red yes. convertible they always dreamed of. And they're like, yeah. cool, I get to do that. Because yes. not a lot of us, when we're 16 to 24, can purchase a red convertible exactly. and be able to enjoy that dream car. So it seems exactly. mismatched when you're in your late 30s getting that. You're like, dude, what are you trying to prove with your, you know, four kids yes. at home it's more like i'm not trying to prove anything i've wanted this for 20 years yes, I, love this car. I love this car and i can finally afford it i have time to actually enjoy it yes. so there's a place of like instead of being freaked out and mocking someone with a quote stereotype which i did you go and go oh i totally get it now i see where you're yes. coming from may not be my choice especially um if we have yeah it may not be my choice but wow, I can see that where that is, that's where compassion can shift the outlook of what a, a midlife crisis can be. Uh, yes. Yeah. So right. much yes. Ex- yeah. Even just hearing like you summarize from what I summarize, that's exactly it. But instead, most women become witch ladies and we get angry and mad and resentful and we judge and we shame and how could you buy this convertible if we have to pay for the kids sports and this and that and let's say it is in the budget let's say it's 100 not going to cause any financial problem at all we judge it as you're being a peter pan you're being a teenager you're no i'm actualizing all of these dreams that i couldn't have done before while i was busy building our entire empire for the two of us and our family and now it's time for me to give to myself so that, that makes me go, well, so why is that a common response from women? And I'm curious if you know the answer to that. The only thing I can think of is that it's scary. Um, is that what I was guessing earlier? I don't know, but because um, I'm just trying to, I don't think I've dealt with that directly in my work. And I certainly haven't read any research about this, but 
just making sense of what I know about relationships, seeing that type of big change in a spouse, especially if it's coupled with lack of communication or unilateral decision making, i.e. the spouse goes by as the red convertible, doesn't yeah. communicate that that's the want, love, dream, and they don't come to an agreement that, yes, it's in the budget, right. and instead unilaterally just goes, screw this, I'm doing it. And by the way, I'm going to drive to Vegas for the weekend. Mm-hmm. What? Um, that would be very scary. <laughs> that's the only thing I can imagine about what could be, why that might be a common response um, from women in these situations. But do you have any other insights in that or any just other thoughts about hypotheses about oh, yeah. why that would be the case? Yes, this often happens because women partner, if you look at the Enneagram, which if you are not a supporter of it, take it or leave it, please finish the episode still. Uh, The over 83% of women are twos, which are that helper giver archetype. It's like the book, The Giving Tree, Uh and they end up at midlife feeling like the stump at the end of the book, The Giving Tree. Uh And they typically partner with fives, which are most commonly men, the brain of the Enneagram, they're very perceptive. They observe. They're very disconnected socially and emotionally. And a lot of the complaints women has, he's not social. I have to pull teeth to get him to be friends and oh. be emotional with me and be receptive and attuned and empathetic listening instead of solution focused listening. They're very connected to the world and what's going on, but more disconnected from the feelings base. So they need to know and be certain. They're sometimes low on risk taking. We also see separately a lot of men's as sevens, the fun, playful enthusiast who doesn't like commitment, doesn't want to be tied down, et cetera. Mm. So if you're dealing with either one of those, five or seven, most common on seeing to your point of why is it such a shock or why do women get judgmental, et cetera. If I've always been with somebody who's super fun loving, or if I've always been with somebody who's really, really rational, let's go with the five route. And and I'm a two Mm. to double down on that. Here, this last six months to a year before you hit this crisis, you were giving me everything I've wanted. You were being emotional. You were being attuned. You're doing all the things that I think or I convinced myself I manipulated you into being. And now it's gone. Uh uh-uh. uh. I want it back. Mm. There's this righteous indignation of, I see you do this for other people. Why can't you do it for me? Or you did it the last year. Why can't you do it anymore? So, men in midlife who have not done an introspective journey. That when this type four, that more um, romantic individualist archetype comes online, there's this immensity of the undone internal work and the bridge from somebody going from more of the archetypal five to a four is often in psychoanalysis, especially referred to suicide bridge because men in midlife, if they don't have that support from their spouse, if they have one or a partner going through that crisis, they will start to feel suicidal, which if you look at fours separately, just as an archetype, they have the highest suicide rate because they are so able to be in touch with pain and emotion almost too much. And in one of my trainings, the example given was they're the person, they make great therapists because they can go deep with pain. There has to be boundaries. They could be sitting in a burning building and say, gosh, aren't those flames beautiful? That in touch with that emotionality. And so from when we're bridging from a five, that research analytic college professor data collector emotionally cut off leave it to beaver type the dad is the analyst and the mom is the loving fun one Uh that is the archetypal american family is a type five man and a type two woman Uh so that's why to to a long-winded answer of your point they'll be the expert in the topic they make really good judges and a very common partner for a hetero five is a two because you can emulate and be the things that i lack 
Mm. And we create somewhat of a harmonious balance until midlife happens and shit hits the fan. Yeah. And then that made me think about a very common dynamic that I do work with all the time in the office, which is one partner, commonly a woman, who has been giving so much in their life to the relationship, Uh, which again makes sense because culturally women are better trained to be caregivers and just givers and empathy um, holders in general. Um, And, and so they are, they love, yeah, people can love that role and get stuck in that role and in that relationship. So it kind of does a combo dynamic. So I'm trying to describe the dynamic is a perfect storm brewing of one partner who for 10 to 12 years has been in the sacrificial giving caretaking Locker, role yeah. and maybe is completely satisfied and happy sure. in that Sure. while the other partner is in 10 to 12 years just building the empire hand in front of face and then suddenly it when this changes and, and one partner goes through a midlife crisis and starts shifting and decides to go get the red convertible that's a powder keg for the other person like what i've given so much to this relationship how are you now taking more or just leaving me behind it feels like i don't mean like actual leaving the relationship but how are you just like now in your own individual journey when i've given you these 10 to 12 years and given so much that is that i see in the office all the time and that is is the explosion of what the hell what this is, is happening this is, this is what i've been dedicating my life to research yeah yeah <laughs> is this dynamic exactly and on i on my one of my other podcasts we're talking about the mental load and kind of deconstructing it how in some ways you bring it on yourself you have a martyr complex you like to be needed you're the typical type two which i am happy to report i can give other people because i know women listening to this if and typically as women who listen to this they vacillate with shame and pride. They must be important by virtue of who they're connected to. And they make others dependent on them by meeting other people's needs. They want to be the giver. They want to meet needs, but have none of their own. They can be very unhealthily manipulative and possessive and feel like you owe me because I've done all this for you. Uh, healthy twos can give from a place and not expect the return of appreciation, but unhealthy twos, codependent tendencies, passive aggressive, people pleasing, all the stereotypic things we see all over social media, that is largely and directly related to a very unhealthy expression of being a two. Over 83% of women are twos. And if you are scoring this over the age of 30 and you're still testing as a two, you need to take a really good look at yourself and be curious about who you would be if you weren't so busy or so inundated by giving to other people and deriving your self-worth or identity from what you can give to other people. So it's the cultural conditioning of the ideal feminine energy and the defense that we often see in psychoanalysis is repression. So it's deeply conscious, not knowing of feelings and needs. And it feels very chaotic and disruptive before you can be put back together. Mm-hmm. That makes so- sense. My brain goes to, and and I don't know if, if I'm just checking time. Um, it, yeah, we have where, time. Uh, well, I don't know if there's more that you want to say about like the different, other stuff on on the types of midlife crises but my brain starts going to all right so this is the powder keg this is the dynamic this is what's going on a common dynamic that can go up on for a lot of um, um heteronormative couples 
Mm-hmm. So then what guidance can we give couples in these spaces? What can uh, we support <laughs> our listeners with in that space? And I got my ideas, but so I, just nice. saw, I just saw your bright, <laughs> shining smile go, I'm so excited to talk about this. So yeah, I'm just of- smiling because you, you are, you have this strength as my counterpart in this, that you're like, okay, but how can we help? And in my brain, oh, okay. I'm like, just sit with the, I want to help. I have answers yeah. for that, but I'm just like, <laughs> with the knowledge like i just blew all of your minds we yeah. just solved, well like, i mean huge problem in cultural society like let that be enough <laughs> well that actually is like always the first step right that always yeah. is so important yeah. to be like let's uncover that this is what's going on yes. in a relationship and if this is speaking to your relationship then talk about that like what does that mean have a conversation yeah. about if this is what's going on you know, can you have a grounded connecting conversation in that space? Absolutely. How do you use this knowledge? Yes. You use this knowledge. And if you are a, if you are the archetypal woman listening to this and you're like, wait, this is me. I'm going to tell you what to not do first. Do not passive aggressively send this to your husband and go, this is what's wrong with you. (laughs) I will personally come find you and I will talk to you and tell you that is a very bad idea. Yes. You cannot shame somebody. You cannot shame anybody into changing. It's not going to be lasting change. And if it does change, it's internalized. And you might be the uh, exception and cause a second crisis if you do that. So please do not send this blame, shame, et cetera. Please do, if you want to, send and say, hey, I think this is us. What do you think? Offer and invite them in if they're willing and don't make a judgment or shame them if they're not willing to, you can still do a lot of the work on your own. You don't have to have your partner's participation to start enacting individual change in your own life. Mm -hmm. If you are the woman, again, listening to this and you notice these patterns, be more accepting and curious. Stop being a nag and stop being critical of your partner for being different, for being more individualistic, for getting in touch with things they never could probably the whole time they knew you because they were so busy giving and providing in other ways so that you could give and provide in other ways. It all comes full circle. So my first recommendation would be invite them in to see if this resonates. And if this does, you as a woman have to stop being a nag and stop being critical and be nicer to your partner, you're resentful because you gave all these things that typically you were never even asked to give. Society maybe forced you to, you took it upon yourself, you were conditioned to, you were asked to do it. And so when you were young and partnered, typically, let's say you got together before you were 30 and you were a two and you picked a five, you really, really wanted this person to be there for you. And so you gave and gave and gave, and you you gave with the expectation that one day you'd get it back. You didn't give with the expectation that one day it would just continue to be that way and you'd continue to be resentful. Uh-huh. So you need to check yourself on your codependent tendencies and your overextending nature. And that's one of the top recommendations would be understand that if you weren't asked to do something, you need to ask yourself, why am I doing this? Uh-huh. And stop expecting your partner to be the way that they were when you first married them and shame them. Be accepting of it. Honey, it seems like you're having a really rough time. Anything I can do for you? Giving from a place of this is going to benefit us both from getting through this crisis together and this new identity formation together. And then on the other side of that, appreciate and admire this man that you chose, that you've built a life with and see what 
kind of look metaphorically from his view what the empire looks like uh-huh. and where where has he solidified in his ways and if you're doing it well uh, originally partnering with somebody do a little bit of core value exploration do a little bit of core identity exploration so you can kind of see well they're where they will land or end up at after they come out of this crisis and they're very sure of themselves they're very stuck in their ways you better like the ways they're stuck in don't try to change their mind and my best advice for women again and then I'll switch for men going through this if you're listening is do not discount a man's opinion men are different than women and their structure and their um, personality characteristic and organization as well and their brain too that we are feelings-based, so feelings are our self-extension, and men are more fact-opinion-based to the point of the Enneagram 5. Uh, An opinion is an extension of self, so you could share an opinion on something, and I could dismiss it much like I might dismiss my own, not not invalidate, but like, ah, I changed my mind. Okay, no skin off my back. Versus I feel it, and I'm going to feel it. I'm not going to change my feeling. It's not going to work if I try to convince you to change your opinion or shit on your opinion, nor would it work if you tried to convince me telling the trope an angry woman to calm down. It's going to make it worse because you're trying to convince me out of my feeling, which is my self-extension. I'm showing you by sharing my feeling. Here's who I am. You're showing me by telling me, here's my opinion on this. I'm opining on this topic. And that's why men get in these debates that women are like, stop arguing it's them battling their extension of themselves. It's not just some silly idea. Yeah. So there's, and I'm a big support of men and women, but I do lean more towards advocating for men because women can be ruthless. <laughs> we can take all that we want and weaponize it and men are not women. So stop expecting them to be. I, as you're sharing that, um, I don't know if I have a camp that I advocate more for, but what stood out to me that I, does align with my take and approach to this kind of going back to my compassion piece i like your core message of make sure you're not shaming shift from shame to compassion and use this knowledge for compassion and i get you know that that sounds lovely like well of course i want to be compassionate i don't want to be like a shaming blaming bitch but i get that compassion a lot of work to undo that oh yeah really hard and in moments where the the activity the behavior the request from the spouse in midlife crisis crosses a boundary like let's say for for your personal boundary you're not okay with um let's say the red um convertible isn't in the budget and it's like stealing from the kids college fund or hey i want to open this relationship up and it's like whoa okay those are those might be stronger boundaries and harder to find compassion with of course. Like, yeah. And that makes sense. It's also where couples therapy comes in. But yeah. outside of couples therapy, it's, yeah. well, what's the underlying need there? Because that's what me you? as a therapist is going to be asking. What's well, what meaning? is it? What do you actually, yeah, what's the meaning of that? What do you actually need from the red convertible? What are you actually needing from an open relationship? What is it that is is not there for your spouse? that you want to figure that. And that can then, that's where if you come to that place with compassion to be a team member as a spouse is saying, ah, I I get that something's not right for you. I want to understand fully what it is and what those underlying needs are. So we can work as a team for you to meet them. Maybe it's not going to be a red convertible yet. 
but maybe we can team up and start budgeting for that. Or maybe there's a different car that's pretty cool. Or maybe it's season tickets to, I don't know, something else, depending upon what the need is that, that we can actually do. Mm-hmm. Or if it's an open relationship kind of example, then, ooh, what kind of like um, connection and, and satisfaction are you lacking here in our, our relationship? Let's talk about that. And maybe that can be a really connecting conversation when done with compassion, not done with shaming and blaming. The the crux of, of <laughs> the evolutionist in me is like, oh. <laughs> mm-hmm. the crux of it is there are going to be sometimes it's the more feminist psychotherapy approach. There are some things that cannot actually be compromised on to fulfill a need. Mm-hmm. Ideal, sure. Mm-hmm. Real, what's going on internally. The red convertible is what's going to do it for me. I don't <laughs> want to convince. I don't want to negotiate. I don't want to compromise. I've been doing that my whole life. It's going to happen whether you like it or not. And understanding as a a female spouse, that's not to be disrespectful. There's still parameters on name call. Like that's never okay. But there's going to be some times where you don't get to put your foot down and it does get to be that way. You can also do that for yourself. And this is a lot of the work that I do with my couples. Well, he gets to do this and that's not fair. Who told you marriage was fair? Who told you life was fair? There's going to be compartments of it. Absolutely. I use the term lopsided. There are going to be things in marriage and in life that are a little bit more lopsided and heavy handed on one and light handed on the other. But to assume it's going to be 100% completely equitable 100% of the time is a delusion. There's going to be power differentials, power dynamics, fairness, um, desire, ability. All of these things are playing into that. Okay, then what's your version of a red convertible? Well, I've always wanted to go on a painting trip in Italy. What's stopping you? Well, I have to deal with the kids and the this and the that. Okay, then let's work towards solving all of that so you can get your version of a red convertible rather than taking his away or trying to negotiate or compromise so he doesn't fully get what he wants because you're resentful. You are not fully getting what you want. So I take it from like a different lens. And then of course, there's couples I've worked with that they're more than happy to compromise and they do a rental of a convertible for a year, so to speak. Uh If you really want it, I'm all for it. Okay, I'm not shitting on the red convertible. It's the best episode of this is in Modern Family. Uh, Phil comes home from the car dealership and he was just supposed to get another minivan, but he gets this cool two-seater and Claire handled it perfectly. And she's like, no, I think it's a really sexy car. I really like it. And then he's getting a text and he's like, oh crap, my client wants to bring her mom. And she's like, well, and he's like, that's fine. I will just put the signs in the trunk, which is in the front of the car. And it's you. Ha- I'll, I'll try and find the episode to link it because it perfectly exhibits how to handle this well and then at a certain point in the episode she takes it drives up the coast is doing cartwheels on the beach and she's like i got all my errands done and i've never felt this free like why don't we do this more it perfectly encompasses how you could best handle this type of relationship shift when you're noticing that and come to a compromise so i just want to speak to that that there are going to be times where compromise feels good and it does satisfy those needs And there are going to be times where compromise is not on the table. And you almost, if you would like the marriage to continue, and then I want to get to that point about, you mentioned about the open marriage. If that's a a shoe in or a soft launch into, I don't want to be with you anymore. It's much easier for me to have in psychoanalysis, a transitional object of wife or partner. If we open it and I get to practice dating all while having the safety of my spouse at home. And then eventually I will leave you. And I will go partner with somebody else, be single for a while, go back and regress to my earlier 
stage of life and then potentially settle in and find somebody new who's not a nag, not critical, doesn't have all the baggage that we've had for all these years of marriage. And I might marry them and find someone new. And I hate to be blunt if that's hurt. I'm not intending. I don't actually hate to be blunt. I don't want to sound rude or um, hurt in saying that. But I look at things somewhat like a five. I am a college professor. Logically, it is what it is. You can't force somebody to want to stay with you, nor would there be a quality of relationship if your spouse was only there to avoid the punishment of leaving. Uh Yeah, that is a sad reality that sometimes later in life, you're not meant to, your partner doesn't want to be with you. Yeah. And uh, I'm taking in what you're saying and I'm organizing it. And there's like sort of like these steps to severity of how you respond there. So you have like, cool, let's compromise. Boom. Yes. Um, But then there's another step of this isn't, this isn't a compromise situation. It can't be. Um, It's going to be lopsided. And let's have a conversation about how can we feel comfortable together in a lopsided moment right now and trust in a long-term relationship we're lopsiding to this spouse right now. And there'll be other moments within the decades together that'll lopside the other way too. And getting really good at getting lopsided together. Yes. Then there's this next level of, wait, we're crossing a boundary. Because it is different for some for some people. It's different. Red convertible versus open relationship. Some people, it could be just as firm of a boundary. Sure. That's where... My initial thing is if you're getting to boundary territory, if there is an opportunity, not just to compromise or go lopsided, but continue the compassion train of, wait, what's the underlying need? Can we talk about that? Because one, either action or inaction is crossing someone's boundary. So you've got to come up to that rigid point and see, can we work together? If that's not the case and that work can't happen, then we're going to this last thing you're saying is like final step up, final level of there might be a reality of two people, very rigid boundaries, people change. And do you need to call it like it is and say, all right, if this, if neither one of us are comfortable with this change, then we're not going to be in a functional relationship moving forward. And it's a conscientious choice to not be in this relationship. So mm-hmm. level, 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 level. Yeah, and, and I'm always, of course, yeah. I'm always couples therapist trying to not get to that last level, um, some, some unless we've gone through the others. Level. Well, yeah, no, I'm, I'm saying I, I don't want to get to that level unless we've gone through the other levels. I think a lot of times it's it's important to just say, "Hey, look, this is where we're at. We're different people. It's time to go our separate ways." Um, and often, I think there's value in expressing those other levels and making in ruling those out. Um, yeah. So that you're not someone who like, oh, we end the relationship and then you go back and go like, but did we get, did we try it all? Do we try to get there? Mm-hmm. Sorry, that's separate from uh, the actual topic. That's just my kind of approach when it comes to um, getting to that that last and final level. Yeah. And I I think there's a something of value and of benefit when we take a look at it that if some couples are coming in on that, like, look, here's where we're at. It's what I see is it's often the individual coming in, bringing ethereally the couple relationship in. I hear a lot about the partner, but they're not sitting in the room, but I can almost imagine them sitting on the couch. Yeah. 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 That the, and it's usually, I primarily work with women. I also work with men, but I would say the archetype of who I see coming in here, mm-hmm. it's more of a smaller sample size in therapy and my coaching practice, it's a little different, but in therapy, it's the woman coming in. Well, I'm not willing to budge. 
well, he wants to be all these different things and he's giving you all these options for compromise or not, or this, or he's showing you who he is now and who he will continue to be. The ball is in your court. Do you want to renegotiate what it looks like and stay married in those tenses for the rest of the duration of your lives potentially? Or do you want to call it quits? Thank you each other for helping raise the family that you have, whatever that looks like and go your separate ways. Like that's where that moratorium happens in the midlife for women set when we could do a whole other midlife crisis for women episode and what that looks like with menopause and all the hormone stuff, et cetera. But the response to the crisis that my male counterpart is going through can often be, well, I've already done this work. I've already been not forced, but societally like allowed to have my identity crisis, have my this, have my that settle into I'm ready to be a queen and treated as such earlier on. And that's when I'm looking for a husband. If I'm like, let's say late twenties, early thirties, just for conservative sake, that I've already done that. I've arrived at, this is who I am, take it or leave it. And then I met you when I was at that. And now 20, so or 10 to 12 years later, you're doing that. I have a jump start on you, buddy. Okay. I'm not changing either. So there's so much, we could talk about this for hours, but there's so much yeah. to this that helping couples get through this if you res in summary, if you resonate with this episode, listen to it, take your own notes, lovingly send it to your partner, see if they even see what you see. If they do, and you are at one of those levels we talked about, go to therapy if you can, or have, if you want to email us for resources, there's other resources and e-courses and whatever you can take that aren't therapy because Another thing about men is they don't always love talking about things or feeling like they're going to be shit on in therapy for being the dude that like nobody wants to walk in feeling like they're the problem unless it's individual and they're ready to change. Uh No partner wants to walk in and have their spouse drop them off for spouse mandated therapy. Look at what an asshole he is. Look at what a bitch she is. Like that's not the goal of therapy. And if you do reach out, share with your partner, hey, I actually want to work through this. I don't think I have the tools on my own to know how best to support you. I think this is what we're going through, but I would like to have a coach for this or some help. Would you be open to try is a much better approach than, well, it looks like you've left me no choice. We're going to therapy. <laughs> like, yeah, no. that, that tends not to work. No, um, that's where you're probably popping the blister within a couple sessions and going, yeah, we're done. <laughs> Yes, um, that's when you come to us at DEFCON 5 and yeah. you bring your relationship on almost death's door and we're like, um, yeah. this looks like Swiss cheese. Like, I can maybe cover half of these at best, but we might want to flip the house. Hey, I love Swiss cheese. It's tasty. Um, I'm down for it. But um, yeah, like you said, I mean, there's actually um, so much that this ties into in relationships we could talk for hours hopefully there's lot i mean i like to think there's lots of really good stuff in here lots of food for thought and some actionable items as well um so let's call it a show yeah thank you listeners for doing your thing and well definitely thank you for um this listener question i appreciate you emailing it in um and thank you everyone for your listening uh if you if anyone else has other questions as always um shoot us an email Ryan and Talia at the couplesguidepodcast.com. Thank you, everyone.